MSW Media. This week, the Trump administration announced that the United States would suspend the Intermediate Range Nuclear Forces Treaty with Russia, claiming that Russia was violating the treaty. Although many observers saw this move as another sign that Donald Trump was putting Russia's interests ahead of our own, NATO quickly expressed support for the U.S. assessment. Was withdrawal from the treaty in the best interest of the United States? Is Trump's foreign policy putting Russia's interests ahead of our own? And what can the U.S. do to deter Russian attacks on our democracy? Let's get on topic. Welcome to On Topic, a weekly in-depth look at a topic that helps us understand the week's news. My name is Renato Mariotti. I'm a former federal prosecutor, a practicing lawyer, and a CNN legal analyst. And I'm usually joined by my friend Patty Vasquez. She will not be with us today, so I will be bringing in a special guest momentarily. But first, I want to talk with you about this issue of the United States withdrawal from the INF Treaty. A lot of you have been posing pretty insightful questions about it, and one of them is a purely legal question that you had. And before I bring my guest, I thought I would address it. Uh, Many of you asked whether the United States Congress can stop Trump from withdrawing from this treaty, or or alternatively, whether he needs their consent to withdraw from the treaty. And this is actually something that is not completely settled under United States law. So the way that treaties work is that when we enter into a treaty, it becomes part of the body of U.S. federal law. The issue, though, is whether or not a president can withdraw from a treaty without congressional approval. And this came up back during the Carter administration uh, when uh, Jimmy Carter unilaterally terminated a defense treaty. Congress did not act or say anything on it. And ultimately, the United States Supreme Court decided not to take that issue. Um, And when they made that decision, they viewed this as a political question. In other words, um, the United States Supreme Court is, like all of our federal courts, are primarily um, uh, try to be above politics, not part of our ordinary politics. And I know some of you have examples like Bush versus Gore of times when the Supreme Court did wade into politics. And those, those, those attempts were criticized uh, because there is something called the political question um, doctrine. And uh, the United States Supreme Court, when something is a political question or a political issue, tries to let the elected branches of government sort those things out because the Supreme Court justices are not elected. They are appointed for life. And so here, uh, in that case, with Jimmy, in the uh, case where Jimmy Carter withdrew unilaterally, the Supreme Court said, look, Congress could have tried to stop him. They didn't do so. Uh, we're going to leave this up to the elected branches of our government. Um, there, ha- there was another time where this came up when uh, George W. Bush unilaterally withdrew the U.S. from the ABM Treaty in 2002. Um, you know, that also uh, was brought to the courts. It was not, did not take itself all the way up to the United States Supreme Court. But there, once again, the courts did not act. So the long and short of it is we should not be expecting uh, or relying on the courts 
to um, uh, to step in if uh, you know if Trump ultimately uh, you know permanently withdraws from the INF treaty. Uh, it's ultimately up to the United States Congress to potentially you know try to block that itself, but the courts uh, will not be stepping in and doing so. So let's bring in our guest, Samantha Vinograd. Sam is a national security analyst on CNN, uh, but before that, she worked in two different presidential administrations, uh, not only in the uh, Department of Treasury, um, in Baghdad, but then in various positions in the Obama administration, uh, in particular working in the National Security Council uh, in, a vi- in a number of different uh, capacities, including senior advisor to the National Security Advisor. Uh, she has a wealth of foreign policy expertise. She's talked a lot about this treaty and our withdrawal from it, and I'm excited to get her views. So let's bring her in. Welcome to the show, Sam. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. So this week, a lot of us were surprised by this news that the United States withdrew uh, from the uh, Intermediate Range Nuclear Forces Treaty. Uh, a lot of people, I think, have been um, uh, abbreviating that. What is that, INF? Is that how it's often referred to? That is how it's often referred to, and I'm going to totally wonk out at the beginning uh, of this segment just to note that that's a shorthand way to describe this treaty. But the full name actually really references the fact that the treaty, when it was signed in 1987, had a really specific elimination component. It actually got rid of a lot of these weapons. It didn't just prohibit um, their use going forward. So this was, you said 1987. This was... um you know, back when the Soviet Union was still in existence, correct? It was. And the first Cold War, yes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I, you know, I was I was reading that you, you helpfully uh, had posted a copy of the treaty yesterday. I was reading through it. So, you know, I think listeners may or may not know that Russia ended up deciding when it became an independent nation to, to take on the treaty obligations of the Soviet Union. Uh, what did the treaty, what was the treaty intended to accomplish at the time it was signed? Well, let's just give, can I just give some quick uh, background just to kind of understand why this was such a landmark agreement. But in the late sure. 70s and early 80s, there was a missile crisis in Europe. Obviously, during the Cold War, Europe was a staging ground for the Cold War. And the Soviet Union deployed missiles that made our allies very nervous. The Soviet missiles could reach well into Europe, and that made our allies and obviously the United States at the time very nervous based upon the danger that they posed. We then uh, moved some of our own missiles into the European theater to really deter Soviet first use and to show that the Soviet Union was not going to have some kind of uh, strategic, um, strategic edge over the United States. We did not want to abandon Europe to Soviet short and medium range missiles. As you can imagine, that led to a pretty tense standoff. And over time, what ended up happening was extensive negotiations. And I'm stressing the extensive here because if we uh, get to talking about the present day, I just want to really emphasize how detailed these negotiations are if we ever renegotiate this INF treaty. But after extensive negotiations, we negotiated the INF treaty, which destroyed and outlawed an entire class of weapons, short and medium range Weapons. So it successfully got rid of a massive stockpile of, uh, of these weapons and outlawed their testing, their development, 
and really they're stationing anywhere, um, anytime by either of our two countries, the U.S., the Soviet Union at the time, and now Russia. As the president and others have made clear, this did not include other countries that currently possess short and medium-range missiles like China, for example. So can you help us understand the difference between strategic nuclear weapons uh, or long-range nuclear weapons and then sort of these intermediate and short-range nuclear weapons and then tactical uh, nuclear weapons? To be totally honest, Renato, that's a little bit outside of my expertise. I'm not a a, a nuclear weapons expert, but the, the shorthand is, and the way that I think viewers should really think about it is, in the first instance, the distance that these missiles Um, can travel. That's why in the INF Treaty, there are specific guidelines as to the range of missiles that can be developed. And another key point with respect to the INF Treaty is that it only um, has to do with land-based missiles. So we're not talking about missiles that could be deployed from from sea, for example, uh, or from the air. It's only focused on the land-based missiles. So it it was narrow in that sense but it outlawed all of the short and medium-range missiles, um, land-based missiles for both countries. So you mentioned a moment ago that the missiles that were covered by this treaty, this was only a treaty between the United States and the Soviet Union and now Russia, and there's other nations that possess uh, nuclear weapons that fall within sort of the... Um, the, the um, ambit of this treaty and I'm in and, and they aren't covered those nations aren't parties to the treaty can you tell us what nations those are well China is the one that most immediately comes to mind uh, and it's been something that the administration has talked a lot about China was not a party to the INF treaty and because of that there is a fear and this we can we can get more into this but there is a fear that because we currently if we had not suspended our obligations under the INF treaty if we stayed in the treaty, we are falling behind while countries like China are develop, developing the weapons that we're not allowed to, which really gives them an advantage over the United States from a security perspective. So we're falling backwards, they're moving forward, and that obviously worries military planners. China is building its stockpile, and we're kind of frozen because we are upholding our treaty obligations. The kind of the, the, the key question is, and obviously neither you nor I uh, any longer have access to classified intelligence, is how far behind are we falling? And was this treaty, was staying in this treaty a foundation for talking to China about signing something similar? By staying in, did we maintain kind of uh, the kind of credibility, trustworthiness that would allow us to negotiate with a country like China on these missiles in any way, shape, or form? So just at a at a broader uh, at a broader level, w- Russia and China are very different nations. They 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 have different levels of power and they pose different types of of potential threats to the United States. I've spoken to some lawmakers and some uh, military intel folks who've suggested that the United States should be more concerned and focused on China than Russia. Can you can you explain to us if what the you know, kind of what the strategic position of the United States is vis-a-vis Russia versus China? Sure. I mean, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to divert from the nuclear topic for a second sure. and just talk about the fact that Russia doesn't need nuclear weapons to attack us anymore. As we speak, we know that Russia is attacking us using something a heck of a lot cheaper and a heck of a lot more targeted than nuclear weapons. And guess what? 
they're actually succeeding. They are using cyber warriors, bots, and trolls, and cyber attacks to literally strike the heart of our democracy. All kinds of people, all kinds of places, our infrastructure, and they're escalating their attacks. They're doing that right now. So it's interesting when we talk about Russia that obviously because of the INF Treaty suspension, there's such a focus on a potential future attack with nuclear weapons at the same time that we're under live attack right now by a different kind of Russian asset. And so I know the State of the Union is on Tuesday. I just wrote my CNN column about this and just pointed out it would be really helpful if the president not only focused on the nuclear threat that Russia poses, but also very clearly articulated that they're using other assets right now uh, to illegally attack the United States. When we think about Russia and China, though, they do have very different aims. And I would urge everyone to read the Director of National Intelligence's Worldwide Threat Assessment um, that was issued last week. And there was a live briefing that President Trump had a very strong reaction to uh, based upon their assessments. But Russia's goal, and this has been public since at least January 2016, is to undermine our democracy and to undermine the U.S.-led liberal democratic order that we have really built up since, uh, since World War II. Russia wants to degrade U.S. influence, and their way of doing so is trying to degrade our de- democracy and our democratic freedom. China has a very different goal. Uh, the DNI does not currently assess that China views this as solely kind of an us versus them scenario through kind of these Cold War uh, lenses. China is quite focused on uh, advancing its own growth, advancing its own model of communism and uh, their economic model as well. And because of that, they are engaged in a range of activities um, to uh, engage in cyber espionage, intellectual property theft, and to build up a military that can appropriately help them accomplish those goals. But it's kind of they're both viewed as rival powers by the White House, but we have to be careful not to lump them together. I would say, though, Renato, the, one of the most striking parts of this Director of National Intelligence Assessment to me was a very heavy focus on the fact that China and Russia are working as a team a lot more than they did in the past. They're combining forces against us, which is not something that I would have expected to see uh, kind of with such emphasis in a DNI assessment several years ago. Yeah, I'm a little. I was a little surprised by that as well, Sam, because Russia and China share a long border with each other. Um, there, there's a lot of good reasons for them to be rivals. They're both on the same continent. They, um, you know, potentially want to exert influence over the same countries. Whereas we're, you know, half a world away in North America. Uh, you, there would seem to be a lot of reasons why the two of them would be in conflict. But increasingly, uh, we I've been seeing news about ways in which Russia and China have been working together. Obviously, China at times has bought military technology from Russia, right. et cetera. Well, I would say that the, what is it, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. Russia and China have had a lot of differences um, uh, along that border, and they continue to have differences related to any number of topics. I think when it comes to the United States, counterbalancing U.S. designs globally is a shared objective, again, for different reasons, but if they both want the same thing, they're going to combine forces. You look at somewhere like North Korea, which is you know, potentially the most near-term proliferation concern that this administration should be focused on. And we should talk about the inconsistencies between the president's approach on Russian nukes and North Korean nukes. But uh, China and Russia 
are both patrons of North Korea, not only because one of their biggest fears is a U.S. strike on North Korea, potentially more U.S. troops on the Korean Peninsula near to their borders, than the ability of the United States to use the Korean Peninsula to exert more influence in the region. So where they find common ground, they are pulling those efforts. They're sharing technology. Um, they're sharing strategy. And that's why we see them even on something like Venezuela. They're both against us on, put, you know, declaring Nicolas Maduro an illegitimate leader because they don't want to see the United States establish a leader. This is their view, not mine. Establish a leader that's more pro-U.S. and anti-Russia and China. So um, for that reason, I think we should expect to see them cooperate more and continue to pull efforts on, honestly, most global issues around the world. So a lot of Americans, I know a lot of listeners when I was reading through everyone's questions this week, um, were are, have been increasingly alarmed by you know, actions by the Trump administration that they view to be advancing Russia's interest. Yeah. This, this, Putin seemed very pleased that we were suspending this treaty. He seemed to be happy to be out of it. He's been, a criti- he's been critical of the INF Treaty. Do you regard this as another action by the Trump administration that is favorable to Russia? Well, it's, it's interesting because this is a gift to Russia, but we have to we have to be careful not to put apples and oranges in the same Putin gift basket in the sense that the president has done many things in the past that I've written about and spoken about on television and said these are gifts to Putin because they're not based on intelligence. They're not based on what's good for our allies. And they're not based upon a national security process grounded in actual facts on the ground. So, you know, when he um, threatens to withdraw from the NATO treaty, when he meets with Putin one-on-one alone, those are gifts to Putin because they're just the president really doing reckless and irresponsible things that are not based on what's good for U.S. national security. This one's a little bit different. Our NATO allies agree that Russia is in is in violation of the INF Treaty. Our NATO allies agree that Russia has violated uh, what it's agreed to. And actually, the NATO Secretary General tweeted, um, tweeted that out a few days ago. Chancellor Merkel said the same thing. So our allies agree on the baseline assessment that Russia is in violation and that something needs to be done about it. The question is, does this help Putin? And the short answer is, is yes, because even if he was violating his commitments under the INF Treaty, he had some constraints on that missile development in the sense that he couldn't make it too public uh, because then everybody would just, you know, say you're publicly violating your commitment. So there was some constraint on what he was or was not willing to openly do. Now, as of today, all bets are off. He can very openly devote any resources that he wants to manufacturing these weapons and stockpiling these weapons. The question will be if he actually moves to deploy them in any way, which could lead us to do something similar. Um, But it is a gift to Putin in that sense because it's kind of a no-holds-barred situation right now, and we'll have to see what he chooses to do with that. So our NATO allies, you know, agreed with our assessment that Russia was in violation of the treaty. What Mm -hmm. about why take this action versus other types of uh, going through mm-hmm. other te- processes to try to enforce the uh, provisions of the treaty? That is the million-dollar question. And the problem with answering it in this administration, I worked under two presidents, but under this administration is 
I don't have a very good sense that the policy process really functioned and that the policy process clearly laid out the alternative responses um, and gave the president the time to really think about which one made the most sense. We know that, uh, I believe it was Secretary Pompeo back in October announced that we were going to um, suspend our obligations under the treaty unless Russia came into compliance. I don't really feel like the president spent a, a lot of time in the situation room going through options to hold Russia accountable for their violations other than withdrawing from this treaty. That's not something that he seems to do very often and to look at various responses, again, short of suspending um, our obligations under the treaty. But there are a range of other things that the president could, could have done. Um, and the question for me now is, what, what options do we have left to deter Russia from manufacturing and stockpiling these, these weapons? I don't know that we have many. You know, Congress could try to act and pass some kind of resolution, but under executive authority, if we don't have a treaty in place, Russia's not violating anything. And so how can the president punish them for that? That's, that's, that's a tough question. And you know, history books will be written about what the president did or didn't consider in terms of um, deterring Russian violations. But right now, it really looks like he tried to engage in some diplomatic engagement, which Obama did too. There's a State Department fact sheet that says that there were, you know, 30 plus attempts to talk about this stuff. But in terms of punitive measures, I don't know what else there was that was looked at. So some of our listeners are perplexed about why NATO showed some support for the United States action here. Obviously, you and I don't know for sure, but they're trying to understand, was NATO's statement um, confined to supporting our findings that Russia was in noncompliance, or has NATO come out and supported our withdrawal from the treaty? NATO has come out and supported uh, the intelligence, really, and it's ironic that the president chose to rely on intelligence to make this decision, ostensibly intelligence about um, Russian violations, the NATO Secretary General um, and others have supported that intelligence. They agree with the fact that Russia is in violation of the INF Treaty. I think that the Secretary General said Russia is in material breach of the INF Treaty. So we all agree on that. Um, and they also said that Russia bears sole responsibility for the demise of the INF Treaty and that they fully support the U.S. suspension and notification of withdrawal. I mean, that is crystal clear. NATO allies in Europe are going to be the most directly impacted from the security standpoint if Russia stockpiles uh, weapons, puts them in range of um, our European allies and or chooses to use them. My sense is that they made this kind of statement because there's crystal clear intelligence about what Russia is doing. It is unclear based upon the really tense relationship that the president has with our NATO allies. It was just a few weeks ago that there was another leak indicating that he wanted to leave NATO. It is really unclear whether he sat down with NATO members and said, okay, what else could we do absent a U.S. withdrawal from, from this treaty? Going back to your, your question right before this one, I don't know that there were comprehensive discussions about other options for holding Russia accountable and or that there are ongoing discussions about what to do if Russia does move to really escalate tensions from a, a missile deployment perspective. 
So when when Trump was running for president, I have to say that one thing that concerned me as a private citizen was Trump's. Um, there was just one thing. <laughs> <laughs> there are a lot of things that concern me about Donald Trump, but one in particular that I think concerned me and maybe didn't concern as many other voters was the way in which he talked about the NATO alliance. I mean, it seemed to yeah. me that he was suggesting that he wouldn't um, comply with Article 5. Uh, he would not uh, defend our NATO allies if they were attacked. And I was concerned that if Trump became president, that Putin uh, might invade uh, Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, you know, states that are part of NATO, that border uh, Russia and had historically mm-hmm. been part of the Soviet Union. And I think that would create a crisis if that happened. It might it might uh, destroy the, the NATO alliance. Uh, I, I'm curious as to how you view this the withdrawal from this treaty um, impacting the security of our NATO allies from a conventional attack. Well, we actually should just look at what's, what's literally happening as we speak, which is several of our NATO allies, as well as ourselves, are, again, are under Russian attack. Article 5 has not been triggered, but we know that Russia is using cyber warfare right now to, to attack the NATO alliance in a very meaningful way. We also know that the president even recently, um, or excuse me, the Secretary of State even recently has not been willing to state clearly that we would uphold our Article 5 commitments. He was asked about defending one of our NATO allies in a recent interview, and he said, I'm not going to talk about hypotheticals. Well, the NATO charter could not be clearer. (laughs) We have to come to the defense of our NATO allies. And, you know, Article 5 was triggered once in the history of the alliance, and that was to defend the United States after 9-11. The president's public comments really suggest that when it comes to an Article 5 commitment, he would really have to think about how big the other country was and how important it was from a U.S. national security perspective. He's made comments about some of the smaller NATO members really insinuating that they're not worth U.S. resources, despite the fact that we have a legal commitment um, to, to provide for their defense. And at this point, we know that Russia attacked a country, not a NATO member, Ukraine, we know that Russia is using unconventional means, cyber warriors right now, to hack into Estonia, to Latvia, France, Germany. I mean, the, the list is endless. And so if President Putin did launch another conventional attack in Europe, I don't think that we, I don't think any of us can be certain we'd have a very strong response. He is still holding all of those Ukrainian soldiers that he captured well, a few months ago. I don't remember the exact date now. And... I don't know that we've really done much about it. We, the President Trump canceled a meeting with him. Um, but other than that, we have not taken a strong response. And the bottom line is, absent a president who is willing to take strong punitive measures to hold Putin accountable, I don't think Putin feels any real reason to hold back at this point. Yeah, there has been an increasing buildup of troops along the Ukrainian border and, and weaponry along the Ukrainian border. Uh, there are a lot of people who are talking about a potential um, a strike by Russia into the Ukraine. I mean, there's been obviously multiple other attacks. They took the Crimea and then there was a there was some warfare in eastern Ukraine. Um, has, do you see anything uh, resembling a United States or NATO response um, to deter Russian aggression into Ukraine? 
I think that the NATO alliance is more than likely internally reviewing troop deployments and uh, asset deployments to try to figure out how to deter Ukrainian uh, an, a, an additional incursion from a conventional standpoint into Ukraine. Do I think that Putin feels deterred right now? No, most definitely not. Based upon his behavior in Crimea and other parts of Ukraine, I don't, I don't think he feels convinced that NATO would respond if he took further action in Ukraine. I really don't. One thing that uh, a lot of listeners have been wondering about and asking about ever since we've had the uh, news that Trump had was the, is the subject of a counterintelligence investigation. We had had an episode a number of weeks ago with uh, Asha Rangappa, who I know you know very well, and <laughs> yes. and John Cipher, uh, the CIA officer, talking about. Um, you know, that investigation. And a lot of my listeners are trying to understand if we look at United States foreign policy under Trump, you know, is there anything that we can evaluate to say that it would be that it is not complete? It is not pro Putin or that there are elements of it. You know, are there any elements of it that could be seen as not helping Putin or are the, could there be more that he could yeah. be doing to help Putin? They're trying to understand that for themselves. Can you help well, us? Yeah, let's separate the president from the rest of the government for a second, because various other parts of the executive branch and the legislative branch are working really hard to implement a Russia policy that holds Russia accountable for doing illegal things and tries to deter them from doing it again. The Department of Justice, the Mueller probe, as you know better than I do, uh, is a counterintelligence investigation to figure out how Russia attacked us. The Department of Justice issues indictments against Russian nationals who do illegal things against the United States. The Treasury Department, I'm going to leave the recent lifting of sanctions against Oleg Deripaska's three of his companies aside. The Department of the Treasury is sanctioning Russians for doing bad things. Various members of the State Department, I'm sure, are working to try to communicate to their Russian counterparts what is or is not, and I hate to use this word, a red line, but, you know, something that we find to be unacceptable. The Department of Defense, we just talked about NATO, is working with our NATO allies to try to figure out how to counter Russian aggression. The intelligence community gave a briefing that detailed what Russia is doing last week just in the hopes that policymakers would use that to inform what they were doing. So the, the wheels are turning. The problem, of course, is that President Trump so consistently undercuts all of that work when he fails to maintain the most basic counterintelligence hygiene and meets one-on-one with Putin, doesn't bring a note-taker, relies on Putin's translator during a one-on-one meeting, and makes decisions that may be based on intelligence that Putin is giving him rather than what his own uh, experts tell him. And I really go back and forth on this, but I, I, I don't think that we can hope to implement a coherent, coordinated U.S. policy on Russia when the president so consistently undercuts it. And that's both from an executive power standpoint, what he can choose to do or not to. And because when you know we come out and we, as an entire government, say that Russia attacked us and the president says, well, I believe Putin, that just really tells Putin he just can keep doing what he's doing because the president uh, obviously isn't that bothered by it. Yeah, I find the the administration's foreign policy towards Russia to be very interesting. Whenever I talk to uh, supporters or defenders of Trump, 
they'll often say, well, look at the actions of the Trump administration instead of Trump's personal words about Russia. And, you know, it reminds me of some of the reports that we've seen of members of his administration kind of acting to undermine his own uh, wishes, you know, t- stealing memos from his desk or, you know, we had this uh, not, uh, you know, untitled oh yeah. op-ed, right? Which did, did not happen when I was at the White House. We never stole memos from President Obama's desk, I can tell you that. <laughs> yeah, it's very weird. Uh, and frankly, I it's disturbing to me as somebody who believes in democracy, you know, uh, for, for better or for worse, a majority of electoral votes went to Donald Trump and he's the president of the United States. Uh, no one elected any of these people. But the one the only way that I can understand some of the administration's foreign policy is that you have folks in the departments who are taking various aggressive stances towards Russia and trying to contain damage that is being done by Trump himself. Right, which is inimical to the policy process that I saw under two presidents. I mean, you it is the job of the president's National Security Council to express their views and to let the president make a decision. If they feel like they have to take action because he is reckless and not acting in the best interest of our country, that means that the policy process is obviously broken and that the people that, the, that are charged with keeping us safe don't trust their boss to do exactly the same. That's a terrifying concept to me. Um, and stealing memos from the president's desk, unfortunately, is not going to, and we've, we've seen this, is not going to stop him from making various decisions. I mean, he announced a withdrawal from Syria where we're fighting ISIS because President Erdogan asked him to, despite the fact that his team had briefed him on exactly why we needed to stay in Syria. And my, my point is, you can't really, it's not like you're going to lock the president in a room and just let him do things that the National Security Council believes are in the best interest of the country. That would obviously be illegal, but it's obviously just not possible based upon the fact that the president interacts with foreign leaders all over the time, is addicted to Twitter even more than you and I are, Renato, <laughs> and, um, and, and all of that. So, you know, my question to those people that are serving in the administration, and we saw this really play out with General Mattis, is at what point do members of the administration no longer feel comfortable that they can fulfill their own responsibilities to their teams, to their staff, and to the, the American people? And I, my reading of General Mattis's letter was that he, that's, that's part of why he resigned. He could not fulfill his obligations and did not feel comfortable serving the president anymore or saying that he was serving the American people. Um, and final point, Renato, but you know, we have several acting members of the cabinet right now which is not in line with the Constitution. These people have not been confirmed by the Senate. And, you know, as a president tries to fill those roles, he's drawing from a smaller and smaller talent pool. And I just really don't know who's going to go in to fill those slots based upon the president's constant insulting of his own team, undercutting of his own team, and disregard for what they have to say. So we're going to have a pretty uh, empty National Security Council Situation Room meeting as we look forward over the coming years. Yeah, it's very bizarre in terms of process with this presidency. I mean, we saw in uh, the the uh, report today by Axios. This is we're taping this on Sunday, uh, February third, and um, 
you know, Axios said, well, in the internal uh, schedules uh, in the of uh, the White House, Trump's spending 60 percent of his time in executive time, which essentially is him watching cable news or, you know, reading uh, newspaper articles and tweeting about it and talking to folks, picking up the yeah. phone and talking to folks about it. And that's the sort of foreign policy level of information that you or I could have uh, to be making decisions. Um, and, you know, what's interesting to, to kind of bring it back to this nuclear treaty that we've been talking about is this actually seems like a move that was based at least to some extent on intelligence, right? So beyond, it's exactly. not, yeah, it's not like Fox and friends uh, was talking about this and suddenly we saw a withdrawal from a treaty. It's very different from the Syria withdrawal. Completely. And, you know, it's interesting because just a few days before this announcement was made, the president said that he did not believe intelligence on, um, on whether Iran was or was not violating the Iran nuclear deal and that he did not agree with the intelligence about whether North Korea was or was not planning to keep its commitments under the agreement that he signed with Kim Jong-un. And we just really have to point out that the president is cherry picking when to use and when to agree with his intelligence community. And I fully support any president questioning his intelligence community. That's just part of why he's there, to question their assessments, to ask for facts, and to really probe if he doesn't think that what they're saying adds up. But this president does seem to incorporate intelligence when it fits kind of a particular personal or political agenda item. And that's really dangerous because you know, in his CBS interview earlier today, again, this is Sunday, uh, was it February 4th? He said quite clearly that he doesn't agree with the intelligence assessment on Iran. Well, that just kind of means that his intelligence community is subject and his policy-making apparatus is subject to kind of what side of the bed he wakes up on in terms of whether, when he's going to listen to what they have to say. That, that is going to make policy-making very difficult for his team. So you know, you mentioned earlier, Sam, the threats that Russia is um, has put before the United States, sort of um, ongoing attacks that they've done, you know, during our elections and and other, at other times to try to undermine our democracy. You know, there have also been reports that have concerned some of uh, our listeners. Uh, about uh, Russia and China's ability to cut off portions of our electrical grid or power supply, um, you know, how could the U.S. respond to those sorts of threats? Well, um, we have a couple different ways. The first is the president not telling Vladimir Putin that he believes him when he says he's not doing it. That's like a pretty <laughs> that's a pretty easy box <laughs> box to check because that's like that's undercutting any deterrent that we might be trying to implement. So that's step number one. Uh, step number two is really identifying means of financial pressure. And that's why we have sanctioned um, several Russian nationals for a range of malign activity. And one of the most impactful set of sanctions that we designed, again, to punish the Russian Federation for their illegal activity and in the hopes of changing that behavior going forward, was sanctioning oligarchs. We know that those are people that are close to the Kremlin um, and are useful to the Kremlin in some way. So as we look at additional sanctions, you know, to be honest, Renato, I don't think that sanctioning more members of the Russian intelligence community is going to have a meaningful impact on Vladimir Putin. 
if we really want to deter future bad behavior by punishing previous bad behavior, we have to look at what matters to him. And what matters to him is his economy and the people that really keep him in power. And so if I was still at the Treasury Department, I worked there for several years, that's what I would be looking at right now. And I'd be presenting those options to the president while talking a lot with our allies to figure out what they are or are not willing to do. Uh, because the Russian economy and the U.S. economy are not that closely intertwined, but Russia's ma- major trading partners, Russia's major financial partners, that's, that's, that's a uh, vulnerability point for Vladimir Putin. So we, you know, I think we've talked here, I think th- that listeners have gotten a good sense of some of the challenges that we have as a nation that have been caused by the Trump administration, various ways in which Trump's foreign policy has uh, undermined the long-term interests of the United States. And I'm wondering what your view is as to how we can repair that damage uh, whenever Trump is no longer president. For example, um, the damage that he's done to the NATO alliance. Well, what I would say is whomever succeeds this president is going to have to kind of fight, uh, fight two battles. One is internal and one is external. From an internal perspective, whomever succeeds Trump is going to have to spend a lot of time reestablishing the policy process and kind of a fact-based approach to making uh, U.S. national security policy is going to have to spend a lot of time reaffirming confidence in the people that are serving our country. That's something that this president doesn't do. And only then can the next president convince our NATO allies that we are both willing and able to meet our treaty commitments and to work with them. Um, And so I I actually think whomever comes next, uh, hopefully in in, in 2020, and I say that because I want a president who I feel confident is putting the best interests of our country forward, is going to have to spend spend time initially um, on that internal function while very clearly articulating that the NATO alliance is unbreakable and doing anything that we can to strengthen it is a priority. That's a pretty clear talking point that the next president could make. And by the way, President Trump could make that same talking point on Tuesday in his State of the Union. We know that he wants our NATO allies to meet their um, NATO spending commitments. But guess what? So did President Obama. We, we want all countries to meet their requirement to spend 2% of their budget. On, um, on the NATO alliance. It's something that they agreed to, but it's not mutually exclusive. The President, President Trump could say that on Tuesday and say, I am hopeful and working to get NATO allies to meet this commitment, but I want to be clear the NATO alliance is unbreakable because it is a cornerstone of American national security. He could do that on Tuesday. Do I think that he's going to? Probably not. Yeah, I mean, it would certainly make a lot of our allies, and I think a lot of us here in the United States, uh, relieved if if Trump made it very clear that the United States was going to defend our allies. Uh, the NATO alliance, just for the benefit of listeners, was entered into very early in the Cold War, the North Atlantic uh, Treaty, and it was the, it was an initiative of the United States to create a lo- a kind of a uh, strong European alliance to deter Russia, uh, Russian, well then Soviet aggression. So it's right. Uh, and- that's such a key point because the president often um, 
mischaracterizes why we do things with our allies, whether that's the NATO alliance or even having troops on the Korean Peninsula, um, you know, stationed in South Korea, which is another ally. We do those things not because we're doing them to help other people necessarily, but because we have assessed that those alliances keep Americans safe. This isn't about protecting, you know, random people around the world. There has been a strategic assessment that those alliances help protect Americans. So um, that's something that the president doesn't typically articulate very well and that I wish he would. Yeah, we have had relative peace in the world since 1945. Uh, Obviously, there have been numerous wars and many people have died in those wars, but we haven't had a worldwide conflict uh, since that time. And many people credit the system of alliances that were initiated and created by the United States as you know, uh, contributing to that stability. So I think all of us uh, citizens, not only the United States, but of the world, uh, hope that that stability will continue. Right. And alliances are also a deterrent. I mean, part of, part of the um, premise of Article 5, and it's not the only one, is that if you mess with the NATO ally, you are going to be countered by the entire NATO alliance. That's a very different kind of cost-benefit calculation if you're thinking about attacking the NATO ally than if you just thought, you know, you were going to invade Estonia and have to deal with the Estonians. Yeah, there's no question about it. And uh, I have to say, as an American, uh, it's it's my hope that we're not only able to survive uh, the rest of the Trump presidency uh, with that alliance intact and strong, but that we have a president uh, after this one who who does a lot to rebuild that alliance. Uh, you and me both. Well, Sam, thank you so much for joining us. It's been a real pleasure having you on, and I have the feeling I'll be trying to get you on the podcast again. You're fantastic. (laughs) Thanks so much for having me. Have a great rest of the day. Thank you for joining us for this episode of On Topic. Please subscribe to this podcast, go to your app and review the podcast, and join us for our next episode. I'm Renato Mariotti. Until next time, let's stay on topic. 